When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey y'all, I'm Alicia. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We have some angels we in do. our story this week. We I was really feeling the love with the launch of Love Letters 2. It's the latest podcast from us at Hemlock Creatives. Are y'all listening yet? I am a literal angel of the morning. At least every day, Monday through Friday. We have a whole week of daily episodes up now. You can subscribe for free at Love Letters 2. You should definitely check those out. After our angels this week, our angels of the morning on Trashy Divorces. Mm-hmm. Stacy, you're bringing us the Trashy Divorces of Kate Rock and Roll. Kate, Mrs. Kate Rock and Roll. Yeah. Kate Winslet, English actress, just one of the best performers of our time, really. And uh, yeah, she's happily ensconced for close to a decade now in a, what looks like a great marriage. But yeah, she had... Should two others and then yeah, Ned Rock and Roll. I didn't know any of that. It was amazing. Who do you have for us this week? This week I am covering the trashy divorce and tragic death and associated spiderwebs really with the profane angel, screwball comedic actress, goddess of Hollywood, Carol Lombard. Grab some hankies, by the way. Yeah, by the end it's a little it gets sad. Gets a little sad. Before we get into our episode this week. I am pulling out this magic mirror out of my little pocket. I see some names in it that we want to give a big shout out to for joining us over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thanks so much for joining us, Ashley W, Rachel M, Christine L, and Rachel. I have another Rachel to give a shout out to. Rach S, your Australian trash panda masks have arrived. I would like to tell you I did a little jump up and down and look at the cute trash pandas. And Stacy said, those are koalas, honey. So the Australian trash panda masks have arrived and they are darling. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Rach S, you're amazing. Alicia, what should we do now? Holy cats. We got to go, go, go. So, Stacey, you have our first Trashy Divorces Angel of the Week. Yes. Angel of the Week this morning. Um, (laughs) So, we have now lived through two pandemic years. And, friends, I'm happy to report that 2021 is the year that the billion or so streaming services that are now out there decided that they were going to take our minds off of it. There was White Lotus, Only Murders in the Building, and Ted Lasso, to name but a few, But one serious standout to my mind was a little show called Mayor of Easttown, starring none other than today's subject, Kate Winslet. No spoilers here, but if you somehow missed this one or the absolutely amazing Saturday Night Live send-up it got when Elon Musk hosted, Kate plays Detective Mayor Sheehan, a cop in small-town Pennsylvania whose life is a series of messes, most of which are made worse by her difficult, hard-boiled personality. Also the search for water. (laughs) <laughs> if you don't know why all your friends were calling water water mid-year, it was Mayor of Easttown. 
Kate Winslet really is a very talented actress. Absolutely. Fearless. She's amazing. Absolutely. So as I am clearly experiencing some end-of-year nostalgia, I guess, let's talk about the wild and woolly story of the love life of one of the greatest actors of our day, Kate Winslet. Kate Elizabeth Winslet was born to a working-class acting family in Reading, Berkshire. Spelled reading, pronounced Reading. Who can say, really? On October 5th, 1975, her maternal grandparents ran the Reading Repertory Theater Company, possibly in their backyard. I'm not clear. (laughs) Read a lot of things, okay? And I'm not clear whether backyard means backyard or just maybe an adjoining structure. Perhaps it was enclosed. Weather in the UK. Anyway. Hell, the Globe Theater didn't even have a roof. You just stood in the rain, man. It was that was before there was roof technology. The English though. takes their theater very seriously. <laughs> Her father played roles in local theater, and of the four children in the family, three of them would go on to act. It was a humble upbringing, however, and the six of them sometimes relied on help from the actor's charitable trust. Things were not helped when her father nearly lost one of his feet in a oh boating God. accident. Mm-hmm. And so he had worked a variety of jobs. He didn't have a like single career. So anyway, like with this accident, that became harder and he had fewer opportunities where he could act. All that said, Kate seems to have had a very happy childhood and describes her family life in fairly idyllic terms. Like, talking about her father and his work. Dad never had a career that could fund our family in any way, shape, or form, she told the UK's Telegraph. So he had to do whatever it took to keep food on the table. He worked for a tarmac firm. He was a driver for the National Trust at one point. And he was a postman, too. I remember that time particularly. I was very little, and the only way I could see him before he left for work was getting up very early in the morning just so I could be in his world. She continues... We never felt like poor kids, which is absolutely a credit to my parents. We lived in a lovely terrace house, and we all had each other. Still do. Aww. So at 11, she earned a spot at a school called the Red Roofs Theater School in nearby Maidenhead. This led to her first paid acting gig, dancing in a commercial for a breakfast cereal called Sugar Puffs, which I believe is now Monster Honey Puffs or something like that, because they had to get healthier. So they replaced 20% of the sugar with 20% monsters. Honey. Sure. (laughs) At 15, she starred in a BBC sci-fi program for children, but she had to drop out of school at 16 for financial reasons. In a life of turnabouts, however, one was coming at her. The following year at 17, she auditioned for director Peter Jackson, who was casting for a film about a notorious 1954 murder in New Zealand the Parker Holm case. Kate's intensity impressed Peter Jackson, and she won the part out of a pool of 175 other young actresses. Holy cats. At the time, she was making ends meet by working at a deli, and the call letting her know that she had gotten the part arrived while she was in the middle of making a turkey sandwich. If the sandwich was ever completed, it was not by Kate, who promptly (laughs) ran outside. Good for her. This, of course, was the film Heavenly Creatures, which ended up being Kate's breakout role. I was precisely the right age for this movie to feel like a very important piece of film. You know, like I was 18, 20-ish when this came out. That movie is how I became a fan both of Kate Winslet and Peter Jackson. So 
Fun story, though, by the time Heavenly Creatures hit the screen, Kate was already a year or two into her first real relationship. When she was 15, while working on that BBC dark season sci-fi show for kids. Oh, I thought you were going to say working at the sandwich shop. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she met scriptwriter Stephen Treadry. I hope I'm saying his name correctly for a variety of reasons. Stephen was 12 years her senior. She was mm. 15. Mm. Kate told Rolling Stone in 2008, I told my mom and I thought, oh no, she's going to hit the roof. And she said, so what's he like then? Are you going to bring him home? They had an almost five-year-long relationship, which ended only when Stephen was diagnosed with bone cancer. Oh no. And insisted that Kate pursue her career instead of taking care of him. I don't believe that she wanted this breakup, but in fact, Stephen would spend the rest of his short life in and out of the hospital writing like a man possessed, and Kate would film Titanic. After they broke up, she was quoted as saying, and I don't know that his illness was public knowledge at this point, quote, he was the other half of my soul. I had an absolutely extraordinary relationship with him. My dear former boyfriend will always be an incredible love of my life. It wasn't as if I just turned round and left him. Our relationship reached a friendly end, and we stayed close. Aww. My heart is breaking a little. Get ready. Stephen died in December 1997 at the age of just 34. Mm. Yeah, he had been mailing scripts from his hospital bed toward the end. Like, he he really, he was an up-and-coming, you know, young leading light in, like, British entertainment. And, yeah. How tragic. His funeral was scheduled for when Kate was supposed to be in L.A. for the premiere of Titanic. And, of course, there was immense pressure on her to meet her professional obligations here. After all, Titanic was the most expensive movie ever made at the time, and it was her first big studio film. Kate was undeterred. She boarded a plane for England. She told The Guardian of Hollywood's priorities in that moment, quote, I suppose I was a bit depressed by that. Someone I had spent four and a half years of my life with had just died. And it was just that people would even consider they would be having conversations with me saying things like, look, we understand this must be a very hard time. And then they'd go on and say, but don't you think Stephen would have wanted it? She takes a deep breath. No, he bloody wouldn't. No. <laughs> Stephen would have wanted me at his funeral, and I'm going to be there. Good for her. Yep. So I know we covered James Cameron, the director of Titanic, back in season six, episode two. I do want to take a minute to review what that experience of filming Titanic was like for Kate. So here's how Andrew Gumbel at The Independent described all of this. When the production moved to Mexico and literally thousands of extras and stuntmen reenacted the sinking of the Titanic on a replica built to 90% scale, Cameron imposed a work regime that left everyone reeling. After spending hours each day standing waist-deep in chilly, dirty Pacific seawater, many cast members came down with colds, flu, or kidney infections. Oh, God. Several left rather than endure the rigorous conditions any longer. Three stuntmen suffered broken bones. Kate Winslet, who starred opposite Leonardo DiCaprio, was so shell-shocked by the experience, she called it an ordeal, that she told one interviewer before the film even came out that she would not work with Cameron again unless it was, quote, for a lot of money. She came down with flu after enduring the cold water, almost drowned at one point, and suffered numerous other injuries. 
I chipped a small bone in my elbow, she told the Los Angeles Times. And at one point I had deep bruises all over my arms. I looked like a battered wife. That's terrible. Yeah, James Cameron does not sound like a real peach to work with. No. And through all of that, her ex-boyfriend, who she was still quite close to, was in a faraway country dying. Okay, on to the marrying part. While filming Hideous Kinky in 1998, Kate met assistant director Jim Threppleton and married him, perhaps a smidge too hastily, in late November of 98. They have a daughter together, but the marriage was not built to last. Kate told Index Magazine some years later, My relationship with Mia's dad was a mess. In the last year and a half of our marriage, I became a completely different person. I was isolated from my family and friends. I started looking for supporting roles because Jim didn't want me to be famous. He would read a script that I loved and immediately kill my passion for it by saying it wasn't good enough for me. That was the only time in my life that I've ever lost control of my instincts. He sounds like a toxic jerk. I think... He's not, I think it, I think their relationship clearly was not great, but I have, there are nicer things coming, don't. Oh, okay. They separated in September 01. Their divorce was finalized that December. And because the British press is what it is a few years later, the Daily Mail published an article called Whatever Became of Mr. Winslet that just dunked on the guy for no particular reason. He took legal action about that. Uh, He was interviewed in The Guardian when his 2007 film, Extraordinary Rendition, which he wrote and directed, was released. And I thought this passage was a nice statement on people making divorce work well for your kid's sake. So it begins with, you know, interviewer. Was it particularly difficult, I asked him untactfully, that Kate went off with another film director? He says, it didn't factor. I mean, we're hardly in the same game. Sam is highly acclaimed, quite rightly so, but it wasn't, oh shit, this guy, the director of American Beauty, is eclipsing everything I ever wanted. I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for his work, and subsequently I've found out over the years that he's a fantastic person to be in my daughter's life. The hardest thing with divorce when children are involved is working out how the new relationship will work. You're obligated to generate new terms of friendship quickly. And I had beers with Sam as soon as possible so that there was never going to be this sense that we couldn't talk. Well, that seems quite proper and reasonable. Yeah, I thought that was really good. I know that is, you know, just a super common flashpoint in a lot of people's relationships. And I thought that was pretty good. A few months after Kate and Jim separated, the artistic director of London's Donmar Warehouse, a playhouse, a guy named Sam Mendes reached out to her to see if she wanted a part in a play that he was putting on there. Sam, born August 1st, 1965, was already an Academy Award-winning director at that point, having taken home the prize for his feature film debut, 1999's American Beauty. I don't think Kate took the role, but she did take to Sam, and they married in 2003 while vacationing, kind of on a whim. They had a child together, and during their marriage, which is seven-ish years, uh, he made movies like Road to Perdition and Jarhead, as well as Revolutionary Road, starring none other than his wife, Kate Winslet, and reuniting her with Leonardo DiCaprio, her Titanic co-star from a decade earlier. This was the period of Kate's career, where she starred in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Little Children, and The Holiday, and with an Academy Award for Best Actress nomination for Little Children at the age of 31, 
She became the youngest performer to have five Oscar nominations under her belt. Wow. Um, she's won two so far in her career as of now, plus like a ton of BAFTAs and Golden Globes and Emmys and all that. So as a couple and as a family, they split their time between New York City and the Cotswolds. And Jim would visit monthly when they were in New York to spend time with his daughter. And they really developed a bit of a reputation for kind of being normies in the universe of famous people. Kate told an interviewer, it's important to us that the children are just regular kids. So we go to the park, kick a ball around, go to a museum, watch a movie together, or just hang out at home playing Monopoly. It sounds very delightfully ordinary. Mm -hmm. In March of 2010... Sadly. Oh, no. Yeah, the couple's lawyer released a statement declaring their union over, noting that they had separated earlier in the year. The split is entirely amicable and is by mutual agreement. Both parties are fully committed to the future joint parenting of their children, it said. It should be noted that there was rampant speculation that Sam had fallen for an actress he had directed, And after the divorce was final, those two were together for a couple more years. Yeah, by 2015, Kate had clearly become a bit philosophical about her first two marriages, telling Wall Street Journal magazine regarding Jim and Sam. She says, quote, I know lots of people who are not in the public eye who have gone through several marriages. I really do. And it's just those are the cards that life dealt me. I didn't plan on it being that way. And fuck me, it hasn't been easy, you know. The writer says Kate has kept details surrounding both splits close to the vest, saying, quote, no one really knows what has happened in my life. No one really knows why my first marriage didn't last. No one knows why my second didn't. I'm proud of those silences. I don't want to be a star on trashy divorces. (laughs) Oh, well, sorry, Kate. Uh, The split with Sam was a heartbreaker for her, and she coped by throwing herself into work throughout 2011. But even when mending a broken heart, you got to take breaks sometimes. So she opted for a getaway to Sir Richard Branson's luxury villa on his 74-acre privately owned island in the British Virgin Islands for a little downtime with the kids. But it would be hard to imagine a worse week to hit the beach because Hurricane Irene was blowing through right then. The house with 20 guests, was hit by lightning, which sparked a 4 a.m. fire, which forced everyone out, including Sir Richard and his wife, fleeing in the darkness and high winds. Sir Richard later told the press that Kate helped his 90-year-old mother safely evacuate. (laughs) Quote, my mom is 90 and can walk, but it was more just to speed the process up than anything else. But anyway, she was great. She swept her up in her arms and got them out of the house as fast as possible. So Kate Winslet did get something out of her Titanic training. She can save Grandma, (laughs) but not Leonardo DiCaprio. Not Leo. (laughs) Goodbye, man. There's not enough room on this door. (sighs) Outside, Kate encountered Sir Richard's nephew, Ned Rock and Roll. That's not his name. It's his name. It's his legal name. Ned Rock and Roll. It's like Phoebe Banana Pants. It's not a real name. Well, if Banana Pants is crammed into one word. Ned Rock and Roll. Yes, his last name, R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L, Ned Rock and Roll. Oh, my God. I believe his actual first name is Edward. Oh, Ned's (laughs) just a nickname. Oh, my. Kate would later tell Entertainment Tonight, quote, I met my husband in a house fire. He was the only dude to have a head torch and a pair of shoes. 
Everyone else left everything behind. I took a bra and passports and my children. So I married him. I was like, I'll go for the guy with the head torch. I mean, it's not a bad plan, it's I guess. It's not a bad plan. Wait, what? Kate Winslet is married to someone named Ned Rock and Roll? Yes. Ned, whose birth name is apparently he was not a famous person, um, and so there are fewer details of him online, but his birth name apparently is Edward Abel Smith. I believe he was born in 1978. And apparently in the 90s and 2000s, he developed this Ned rock and roll persona and formally changed his name in 2008. His ex-wife told the Daily Mail, it was hysterical. We had discussed him doing this many times before, but I wasn't sure whether he'd do it. The whole thing was about having fun with your name. He thought we all took ourselves too seriously, so it was about reacting against it. I don't know. I would have come up with something maybe different than Ned Rock and Roll. Wait until you hear about Ned Rock and Roll's career. Oh, Jesus. Okay. More fun. He works at his uncle's Virgin Galactic Company, his space flight company. Oh. Where Ned's job title is Head of Marketing Promotion and Astronaut Experience. Oh, God. I mean, what's not to love? So they became engaged in 2012. They married later that year. And I think I read that Leo DiCaprio walked her down the aisle. They had a child together in December 2013, and they have apparently been going strong ever since. In a January 2021 appearance on Jimmy Kimmel, she said this about her husband's unusual name, which he has since changed back to the original. Oh, thank God. So his birth name is Abel Smith. And as time went by and Ned became Ned, who is quite an original personality, he just decided at one point in his life to just change his name to rock and roll. Ned Rock and Roll. So when I met him, his name was Ned Rock and Roll. This is completely true. But have you seen his headlamp? When he changed his name to Rock and Roll, I don't think he had anticipated what might happen if he should have a girlfriend whose name was Kate Winslet, who was quite well known, and therefore the press might kind of not react so well to the fact that she had this boyfriend called then Rock and Roll. So it was a little tricky, she continued, and I love how it is the annoying mundane details of life that crashed through this guy's unusual nomenclature. She says, I got to the point where I'm like, you know, I'm filling in doctor's forms and it says mother's name and father's name. Oh my God. And I'm like, honey, are we going to keep going? And he's like, yeah, you're right. I'll just change it back. So he changed it back. In September of this year, 2021, when Kate Winslet accepted her Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Limited or Anthology series for her portrayal of Mare in Mare of Easttown, she was clear about where things stand in her life. My children, the greatest people in the world. And my husband, Ned, who I get to hold hands with for the rest of my life. Yes, I am the winner. Thank you so much. Everything else is water under the bridge. <laughs> And that is Kate Winslet, who gets no trash cans, only only accolades. I just love her work. That was decidedly not trashy at all. No. <laughs> well done. Low on trash, high on good performances, and uh, just a little, I don't know, Ned Rock and Roll. That's remarkable. I didn't know that she was married to a guy named Ned Rock and Roll, who's previously known as Ned Rock and Roll. Apparently the head of astronaut relations. Astronaut experience. Didn't even know that was a job. So I suspect it's not. This whole trashy divorces <laughs> journey really teaches you a lot. Oh, well, that is what I have in my end of year fandom 
So perhaps we should pause. We're going to come back with the profane angel, hmm. one of my favorites. My original story was way too trashy to stack up against Kate Winslet. So we are focusing on a different kind of angel, Carol Lombard. I'm going to go pour myself some water. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Hey, Trash Panda Nation, let's everyone just take a minute, give yourselves credit for getting to today, and now we cue Sir Elton John. I'm still standing. Would you like to say that you are standing better than I ever did about your personal finances? Our friends at the Oak Tree Group are ready and willing to help you. The mission of this all-female firm is to guide you through all phases of your financial journey using an intuitive and holistic approach. Best of all, Oak Tree Group is offering our Trashy Divorces listeners a free one-hour consultation with no obligation to talk about your financial concerns. Give the Oak Tree Group a call today at 770-319-1700 to set up your appointment. Again, that number is 770-319-1700. And you can always visit www.theoaktreegroup.net for more information. And we're back. Alicia, what angel of the morning have you found for us this week? The profane angel, Carol Lombard. (laughs) The screwball comedic actress of the 1930s. 
lots of love affairs, a trashy divorce, finally marries the love of her life, Clark Gable, who Mm. we talked about in season seven, Mm -hmm. and then tragically dies. Oh. Leaving Clark Gable a widower. See, I like my story better. (laughs) This was the least trashy. Yeah, no, I gotcha. Up against Kate Winslet, I could. The story I had was just way too trashy to put in the Angel of the Morning episode. I hear you. So this week, we are going to talk about Carol Lombard. Because there's no song called Devil of the Morning. (laughs) (laughs) Carol Lombard is a goddess. I'll just straight up no trash cans for Carol Lombard. This is a no trash can kind of week. We're evidently in the holiday love letters to mood. Let's talk a little bit about the profane angel. She didn't start out profane, naturally. Carol is born Jane Alice Peters on October 6th, 1908. She is a Libra girl. She's born in Fort Wayne, Indiana to Fred and Bessie. She has two older brothers, and life is fine for a while, but her parents split up when she's six. And mom, Bessie, is going to pack Jane Alice and her brothers and go to where else for the climate? California. Like every other... Gold. (laughs) I'm just saying, every family in America Mm -hmm. goes to California in... The early 20th century, it's remarkable. Yeah, back when it was affordable to go to California. When it was affordable to go to California, but like every other star, future star that goes to California for the climate, they're naturally going to get discovered because they're just handed out contracts on the sidewalk. For Jane Alice, she's out playing stickball one day with the boys and gets discovered because that happens every day in Hollywood. (laughs) Streets paved with gold. (laughs) At the age of 13, Mm. she is in her first film. In 1921, called A Perfect Crime. Mm. She's billed as Jane Peters. Okay. She's going to work her way up. She's going to change her name to Carol with an added E for a little something extra. Not Carol Rock and Roll or anything, but Carol with an E. Can we call her Carol Rock and Roll? (laughs) Carol's going to gain some attention as one of Mac Sennett's Bathing Beauties. We talked about him in an earlier episode this season. And things are on the rise, really, for Carol. She's breaking out, doing her thing until 1929, and she gets involved in a very serious car accident. The windshield will badly cut her face. Mm. And in the there is surgery from this. She undergoes surgery with no anesthetic. Can you imagine? Nope. She's super lucky to have a face. She's going to end up with a very tiny scar, Hmm. but all in all, kind of a remarkable recovery. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. By 1931, now she's 23, she's a definite up-and-comer, and she is starring with William Powell, the star of the day. He's 38. He's born on June 26th, 1931, and Carol Lombard and William Powell are going to get married, and they're not very well suited for each other. We'll just start there. Now, William has been married before. To a lady named Eileen Wilson, who was born with the name of Julia Tierney. He's a father. They were married 15 years, beginning in 1915. It ends amicably in 1930. Leaving William to marry Carol in 1931. And he's like stodgy. He's kind of a homebody. He's very serious and very stuffy. And Carol's just not that. She's kind of a lounge lizard. She's social. She's an extrovert. She's the life of the party. Well, and she's in her early 20s. 
in Hollywood. Yeah, two years on by the summer, Carol Lombard is packing her bags. She has partied on out of that marriage. And making a little quickie trip to Reno. Ah. Uh-huh. You get married in Tijuana, you get divorced in, in Reno. Reno. Yeah. There's your bingo for this week. But she finalizes marriage number one in a quickie divorce on August 16th, 1933. So in and out two years. Now, even though William Powell and Carol Lombard divorce, they do stay friendly. They will star together in My Man Godfrey in 1936. And there's a slight bit of tragedy attached to William Powell that we have not yet talked about within our Trashy Divorces universe, but we're going to. William Powell in 1937 is engaged again to the newest blonde archetype of Hollywood. Her name is Jean Harlow. They will star together, William Powell and Jean Harlow, in 1935's Reckless. But in 1937, Jean Harlow dies. Yeah. It's a terribly trashy, it's sad. It's a tragic story, but Jean Harlow is sort of amazing. We'll get to her one day, I promise. Okay. Different arc for a different day, but there's a little trash candy for a future future thread. William Powell will marry one more time in 1940. This time, apparently, the whatever time is the keeper for William Powell. This marriage is to a woman named Diana Lewis that will last up to William Powell's death in 1984. But this story is about Carol. So let's go back to 1934. She's going to break out in a film with no less distinguished of an actor than John Barrymore called 20th Century. And now she's the queen of screwball comedy, right? But 1933, she's going to get a boyfriend. Carol's going to fall for this new crooner on the scene. And this guy's name is Russ Columbo. And Russ Columbo, right now, his big competition in the world is Bing Crosby. Okay. I was okay. going to guess Sinatra, but okay. No, Sinatra is still a decade De- too okay. early. Bing Crosby is the crooner of the day. And you're like, Alicia, I don't know Russ Columbo. Who, who's that guy? He suffers a tragic death in 1934. It's terrible. He is breaking through where Russ Columbo is in his career. He's doing radio and films and add a little Carol Lombard star power to that matchup. And Russ loves Carol. He likes that she is full of zany antics and salty language. Like she has a cussing parrot on her shoulder just in her own brain. And everybody knows that Russ and Carol are going to get married. And some people are like, Carol is not going to settle down. There are distinct opinions about this matchup in Hollywood. One from no less of a gossip columnist than Hedda Hopper. Hmm. Hedda Hopper says, the couple's relationship was based on many things, but not sex. Interesting, right? So Hedda Hopper doesn't believe that Russ Columbo is heterosexual Mm -hmm. and that this is a... Right. Relationship of convenience. Hedda Hopper will cite a number of traits, which causes her to question Russ's heterosexuality. Yeah. He, like, okay, here's her big examples. He spends a lot of time and money on his hair, and he has sun tanning treatments, and he carries around a pocket sized mirror that he just likes to pull out and look at himself in public. This is long before the song You're So Vain was written. (laughs) 
Carol and Russ are connected in whatever way, and Carol is helping Russ, and Russ really likes her, and everything's going great. Until one night, September 2nd, 1934. They spend the night dancing and dining at the Coconut Grove. This is a Wednesday night. And Russ Colombo has a radio program that he's going to do that evening. But on the way to the studio, he's going to stop at his friend's house. His friend is named Lansing V. Brown Jr. And Lansing lives with his parents in Beverly Hills. He's also a photographer, kind of respected. And he, Russ, goes to see Lansing. I I don't know what's implied here in this particular visit, but apparently... It's the golden hour or some crap like that. And Russ is like, sure, Lansing, you can take my picture. So they do some photography, pictures, stuff, sure. After this, they get to talking about the things that they have in common. And one of their great mutual shared interests is antique pistol collecting. This is going to go great. Guns are very dangerous, my friends. (laughs) Here is an article about how it all goes down from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette from September 3rd, 1934. Radio star killed. Russ Colombo shot in pistol accident dies. Fatal pellet fired from gun in hand of friend. Isn't that terrible? Yes. All right. After lingering for hours between life and death from an old-fashioned pistol ball accidentally fired into his brain earlier Uh. in the day by a close friend, Russ Colombo, noted radio crooner and screen star, died tonight at a hospital. Colombo died as specialists were prepared for a major operation to remove the pellet which entered his head through the right eye. Hollywood police said that Lansing V. Brown, noted portrait photographer, who was Columbo's host, accidentally fired off an ancient pistol of his prized collection of weapons, and that a ball which Brown did not know was in the barrel struck Columbo in the head. Police said that the crooner was visiting Brown at the latter's home, where radio and movie stars long have congregated because of their close friendship with the photographer. Apparently, Lansing is exhibiting his collection of old and picturesque weapons to Russ, picks up a revolver, this is according to the police, and placed an ordinary match head in the cap pistol mechanism to sort of explain how it worked. And he pulled the trigger and the gun suddenly jerked upward in his hand and the charge, which had lain undiscovered in the gun for many years, sent a ball into the head of Columbo, who was sitting some distance away from Brown. There's surgery. He's rushed to the hospital. Carol Lombard, prominent motion picture actress who is reported to have been engaged to Columbo, received the tragic news at Big Bear, where she had been convalescing from an illness. She immediately left for Hollywood and the bedside of the man to whom she was soon to be married. All of that is terrible. Mm -hmm. That is sad but it is not the actual trashiest or the sweetest part of the story. It's complicated. So Russ Colombo does die and Carol is devastated. She's at the funeral. Russ's former girlfriend, a lady named Sally Blaine, is there as well. 3,000 people gather at the Catholic Church on Sunset Boulevard. One of his pallbearers is Bing Crosby. 
Now, Russ Colombo has seven brothers and sisters, and the Colombo family has an ailing mother. She's very sick. She's been sick for a long time. It's one of those she's been ready to die any day for a number of years. Right. And the remaining siblings of Russ don't want to tell her about Russ's death. They think telling her about this is going to send her just the shock of it to the grave. Mm -hmm. So they will craft a story for Mama Columbo, which is Russ has left on a five-year international tour. (laughs) It's just so wacky it might work. Well, the money that was... Attached to his life insurance mm-hmm. policy is used to support mom as well as carry on this ruse because this is a, a this is a ruse. It's a fiction. Complete fiction. They will send letters to her written by Russ. They'll write letters and sign them all with love from your loving son and I all that jazz. Cannot imagine how hard that must have been to Write a letter as your dead brother. Wait, they'll imprint each with a London postmark. So they'll send packages and gifts and letters with the same London postmark. They will play records of his and say, Mom, Mom, Russ is on the radio tonight. Let's listen in. Mom is almost blind. So that's a help in pulling Mm -hmm. off. She's, Mm -hmm. She's hearing it. Every newspaper that does come in the home is totally censored. Like, there's no... Yeah. Okay. Now, Carol Lombard even pitches in, and she'll write to mom as well with updates on Russ. And he is so busy, but he's having such a fabulous time in fill in the blank on a city in your five-year international tour. You come over to visit Mama Colombo. And you are warned at the door. You always use present tense about Russ. Mm -hmm. He is more popular than ever. Yep. Five years passes. How'd the tour go? Mama, he's too big of a star. Oh, my God. His tour has been extended. This goes on for 10 years until Russ Colombo's mother dies in 1944. Oh, my God. At the age of 78. With Mama Colombo's last words being, tell Russ, I am so proud and happy. Not sure what to say about that. Whew. I mean, I get it. I, it was one I of do. the most compelling stories I have ever heard. I mean, the attention to detail. I, beyond. Like, We're going to protect mom at all yeah, costs from this heartbreak. Like, I applaud. Ugh. Also, like, Wow. The time we fooled our mother for 10 years. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But again, the story's about Carol. Uh, Right. (laughs) It was just such an interesting little spider web. I can't not not mention it. Carol's going to get her first Oscar nod in 1936, starring opposite her ex-husband, William Powell. And this is when she will get her new nickname, the Profane Angel, because Carol Lombard is a cusser. Her language is salty. She will tell friends privately that it's all a smokescreen just to set her on par with men. It keeps men just a little bit scared of her. And because it makes her seem like quite a handful, she doesn't really sleep around with her co-stars like a lot of other actresses do. Like Carol chooses very wisely, but 
the persona that she puts on keeps men kind of mm-hmm. off. Carol is going to get married again, this time to Clark Gable. Now, the two of these, Clark and Carol, have kind of come up in Hollywood around the same time. They've skirted around each other for a while. They are both credited as extras back in 1925's Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ. Nobody knows even if they met at that point, but they're both young. They're both up and coming. And Ben-Hur has a big fucking cast. Yeah. The next time our future lovers get together is 1932 on Paramount's film No Man of Her Own. Now, in 1932, Carol Lombard is still married to William Powell. And Clark Gable is having a torrid affair with Joan Crawford. Clark Gable also has a mad crush and is super into this British actress named Elizabeth Allen, who is not at all Clark's usual type. Elizabeth Allen is quiet and brunette and very unassuming, like opposite Joan Crawford. A few problems in all of this grand love affair. I'm sensing a few. Elizabeth is married. Hmm. Her husband is back in England. Clark is married as well. Hmm. And his wife is just sitting at home waiting for him to come home. Sure. So Clark Gable and Elizabeth Allen carry on for a few years. It's really low-key in Hollywood, although everyone knows. But they make sure never to be photographed together. It's all very clandestine. Poor Elizabeth. Elizabeth Allen falls to the wayside once Carol Lombard comes along. See, Carol and Clark have known each other for a hot minute, right? Since back in 1932. But then they get together again and sparks are actually going to fly this time. Elizabeth heads back to England in 1938. And there's an attempted lawsuit with MGM where Rosalind Russell's going to get a role that Elizabeth Allen was promised. It's kind of trashy. Elizabeth Allen and Clark Gable will hook up one more time when he's in World War II doing his stint in the army. He's stationed in London. Elizabeth is still married. She has two kids, but Elizabeth and Clark reunite for just a little bit. Elizabeth Allen will continue to act in England, working through the 1950s. She's super successful. She'll pass at the age of 82 in 1990. Okay. But at this time, like, Clark and Carol, they're friendly. They're playing, you know, in a movie after, You know, they're playing in a movie together, but they're having fun with each other. At the uh, rap party, Carol will give Clark a 10-pound ham with his picture on it. (laughs) Like, you're quite a ham. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's going to take another four years for our star-crossed lovers to get together. But I'm taking this part from Dear Mr. Gable, that website, because I don't know if I could write it any better. On February 7th, 1936, both attended a party at Jock Whitney's house to celebrate screenwriter Donald Ogden Stewart's wife's recent release from a sanitarium, jokingly called the Nervous Breakdown Party. (laughs) All right. Hey, you got to celebrate. I mean, yeah. Big, big, big wins, tiny wins, all the wins. Sure. Things did not start out well for Carol as a joke arrived in an ambulance. Attendants carried her on a stretcher and placed it in the middle of the room. Everyone gasped and gathered around. She jumped up, howling with laughter. 
Clark Gable, who's there with Merle Oberon, was not amused and found the joke in poor taste. Clark and Carol got into a fight that ended with her stomping away from him, furiously proclaiming that he was a stuffed shirt. (laughs) Okay, near the end of the party, Carol's like, oh, you want to play a big bad game of tennis? Challenges him to a game of tennis. And they play, they're both in evening clothes. And they will play tennis on that court until it is too dark to see anymore. Carol beats him 8-0. Now, Merle Oberon, irritated by being ignored, Hmm. finds someone else to take her home. Clark Gable does not notice. Well. Mm -hmm. Okay, a couple of months later, it's the annual Mayfair Ball. Still 1936. And Spiderweb's here. So David O'Selznick asks Carol to host the Mayfair Ball that year. And Carol's date is Cesar Romero. Clark shows up alone. He shows up stag. And he is separated from his wife, Rhea, at the time, but not yet divorced. So Clark and Carol have a dance at the ball. And he is feeling her up in that dance and realizes that she's not wearing any underwear. Oh, my God. So Clark Gable is like, hey, let's get out of here and go fuck. And Carol Lombard's like, who the hell do you think you are? Clark Gable leaves the party. He gets mad, leaves the party. But Carol Lombard's not done with them. <laughs> she will pay the hotel to put birds in his room oh while my he's God. sleeping. Oh, my God. So when he wakes up, there's dozens of birds just coo, coo, cooing in his room. And there's a little note on one of the birds that says, how about it, Carol? And oh from this point on, the love <laughs> affair is born. Birds, you say? Now, Carol and Clark are in love, and they're just going to keep on keeping on. She wants to be Mrs. Clark Gable and have all of his babies. And Carol Lombard is going to buy Raul Walsh's 20-acre ranch in Encino for $50,000. She writes a check. She wants to set about making a home for the day that they do get married and his divorce is done and all that jazz. From 1936 to 1939, Clark and Carol are together, but they are literally the worst kept secret in Hollywood. Rhea will not divorce Clark. She just keeps holding out for more, 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 more Hmm. until 1939. I'm not sure if you know what a big year it was for movies. There was a little film called Gone with the Wind. Right. Who did that star? Yeah. So... Rhea is adamant that she is not going to divorce her husband, Clark Gable, until the half a million dollar of Gone with the Wind money gets dangled in front of her face. Yeah. There's a 21-day wait from the divorce from Rhea. This happens on March 8th. March 29th, immediately after that 21 days on Clark's first day off filming from Gone with the Wind, Clark and Carol elope. To Kingman, Arizona, Clark wears a blue suit. Carol cries all through the ceremony. Clark's really nervous. Like, they love each other. They love each other so much. They call each other Ma and Pa. And Carol Lombard, like, previous lounge lizard, isn't anymore. They spend their evenings in their Encino ranch at home. She goes camping with him and fishing with him and hangs out like she's one of the guys 
and they have chickens and horses and dogs and cats, and they have a tractor and a harvest and a garden. Like, they're the Spanish pipe dream. Like, go into the country and build us a home and plant some peaches and raise a bunch of kids, and it's going to be amazing. One afternoon, they're sitting on the patio watching a sunset. Just, like, it sounds like the good place, Mm -hmm. right? It's so nice. And Clark becomes emotional and says to Carol, Ma, we're lucky people. We've got this ranch, and while it's not going to support us, it feels like a ranch, and it smells, and it looks like a ranch. It's not just animals and hay. We got the house fixed just to suit us. We both got good jobs, friends, money in the bank, and our health. God's been good to us. Can you think of anything you really want that you haven't got? Carol thinks for a minute and answers, Pa, to tell you the truth, I could use a couple of loads of horse shit if we're going to do any good with those fruit trees. <laughs> I mean, they're just delightful. Uh-huh. They love to play pranks on each other. They are perfectly, wonderfully suited for each other until infertility descends, hmm. right? She really does want to have a child. She spends two years trying to get pregnant. Clark and Carol will even go to Johns Hopkins in Washington, D.C. for fertility tests. The infertility and, like, trying to get pregnant has put a strain on their marriage. December 1941, Pearl Harbor, Mm. war is on. And Clark and Carol, both patriotic Americans, are like, we absolutely have to get involved in the war effort. Clark Gable will be elected president of the Hollywood Victory Committee. He is setting up rallies to sell war bonds. And his wife, Carol whoa, is going to sell a bunch of them. (laughs) Carol's going to take her mom and the MGM publicity guy. His name is Otto Winkler. They're heading to Indianapolis. And the goal is to sell $500,000 worth of war bonds that day. Carol sells $2 million plus of war bonds. Good for her. She's amazing. Now, upon leaving for this trip, Carol is going to give Jean Garceau, this is the personal secretary they have, she'll give Jean, I love this story, she'll give Jean a note every day that she's going to be gone to give to Clark. Here's a, mm-hmm. like, a, yeah. love, a, yeah. a love letter to you, a love letter to my husband. Every day I'm gone, Carol will hug Clark. She'll hug Jean and say, take care of Pa for me. So after Indianapolis, war bonds, two million plus, Mm -hmm. there are a few more stops, but Carol is like, no, I've got to go home. And so instead of staying on the train that is scheduled to get her home, Carol will instead book three tickets on TWA flight number three. This is a DC three. Carol is 33 years old. Carol's mother has never flown in an airplane and is an avid believer in numerology. I feel like you're giving me a lot of details here about a flight. Yeah, there's a lot of threes and Carol's mom is totally against it. Carol laughs it off. I want to get home. They toss a coin. They board the plane. There is a fuel stop in Albuquerque. And it is here in Albuquerque in a very cruel twist of fate. That Carol and her mother and the PR guy are asked if, you know, they wouldn't mind giving up their seats on this plane for these three servicemen. And Carol Lombard says, no, I want to get home. I want to see my husband. Sorry, Charlie. I just raised him two mil. Right. And Carol, her mom, 
and the PR guy are due to arrive in Los Angeles at 845 that morning. Now, Clark has been home. He's been awake all morning long. He's been working all night. There's a surprise party Mm. planned for his beloved wife, Carol, coming home. I'm guessing. The house is decorated in red, white, and blue, and there's streamers and balloons, and he's going to wait at home. Clark will, because the airport is going to be just full of press, Mm -hmm. and then there's a phone call. And on the telephone is Eddie Mannix, the head fixer. Sorry, I mean head executive Mm. for MGM. And Eddie Mannix tells Clark that Carol's plane has gone down outside of Las Vegas. Mm. So Clark and Eddie are going to charter a plane to Las Vegas immediately. Clark Gable will insist on going to the crash site, and Eddie Mannix dissuades him from this. Eddie will later say what he saw in the blood-spattered snow was something that has always haunted me. Mm. And that's from a guy who's done some pretty bad stuff. Eddie's going to send Clark a telegram. There are no survivors. Everyone on the plane was killed instantly. Mm. Eddie will find a piece of one of the ruby clips that Clark has given Carol for Christmas. But her wedding band was never found, even with Clark offering a very large reward. Clark Gable, as you can imagine, is devastated. He is burying his wife, his mother-in-law, and his friend. The funeral for Carolyn, her mother, is January 21st. Clark Gable will sit in the front row and speak to no one. Carol has requested that she be buried in a white dress by her favorite designer, Irene. The dress is laid on the coffin. Clark will go home after the funeral, back to that decorated ranch in Encino. And Jean... Their personal assistant is going to give him the last note Carol had written to him. And this is when Clark Gable loses it. Gene doesn't know what that note says, but upon reading it, Clark just Mm -hmm. sobs. Gene will say up until then, Clark had borne himself with fortitude and courage, had been stronger than any of us throughout the entire ordeal. After he calmed down, He was again in perfect control, his grief masked. He asked for no sympathy, wanted none, was unapproachable. And that is how Clark Gable changes. With the loss of his beloved Carol Lombard. I know it's terribly sad. I've got a few quotes here, though, from Carol Lombard, which might make us feel better. Or not. I'll work a few more years and then I want a family. I'll let Pa be the star and I'll stay home, darn the socks, and look after the kids. We never do anything much, but we have a lot of laughs and Pa is relaxed and happy. Carol Lombard knows her husband and she will say about him at one point, Clark isn't the happy-go-lucky, carefree man the public sees. He's not had a very happy life and is inclined to be depressed and worried. I want to make it up to him if I can. Clark will marry two more times. He'll live another 18 years. But again, he's never quite the same. The wife of John Barrymore, Elaine, perhaps says it the best. She says about this, Clark adored her. She was the light in his eyes. He admitted to me that he had always loved the company of ladies, and he knew he had a reputation of being a ladies' man. But with her, it was different. He really was in love. To have her taken from him was like someone ripped out his soul. 
I saw him periodically for years afterward. The light in his eyes was gone, even when he smiled. That light never returned. Clark Gable is buried next to his wife, Carol Lombard, in the third of the plots that he buys to bury both Carol and her mother. I didn't mean to make you cry. I'm sorry. It's well, a, I, it's a tragic story. I didn't know you meant literal angel of the morning. Yes, literal angel of the morning. I'm going to end, again, no trash cans. Carol Lombard is just a delightful goddess. I do have a quote from Life magazine from 1937 written about her, which, wow, is a great way to remember the profane angel. I sort of love this quote. About Carol Lombard, Life magazine, we'll say in 1937. She gets up too early, plays tennis too hard, wastes time and feeling on trifles and drinks Coca-Cola the way Samuel Johnson used to drink tea. She's a scribbler on telephone pads, inhibited nail nibbler, toe puller, pillow grabber, head and elbow scratcher, and chain cigarette smoker. When Carol Lombard talks, her conversation, often brilliant, is punctuated by screeches, laughs, growls, gesticulations, and the expletives of a sailor's parrot. I love Carol Lombard. She is amazing. Well, thanks for that sort of downer. <laughs> no, it it's, I mean, love, man. From the Clark Gable story, I promised we'd follow up on that. Mm-hmm. We had followed up on it on Patreon, mm-hmm. but with your Kate Winslet... I wanted to talk about another angel and not the devil that sure. will be coming for you from me on next Perhaps week's next week, yeah. Trashy Divorces. Before then, you can catch us Wednesday, right back here on Trashy Breakups. In between then, Love Letters 2 will get you your daily fix of a little delightful podcast every day, Monday through Friday. Don't forget to tune into that as well, if you are so inclined. Thank you so much for joining us. As we try to bring some lighter stories in the yeah, in mine wasn't really holiday. Light. No, it really it started pretty good. There's a lot of spider webs, a lot of spider webs. It had a notable dip in the happiness there at one point. The water level went down. <laughs> the water level went down. Um, y'all, thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs> we adore you. Have a wonderful week. Get your holiday spirit on. Until we meet again, friends, clean hands, trashy hearts. Big love, y'all. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. 
If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Interested in some trashy divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and trash panda enthusiasm society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.